Good morning and good afternoon to all our colleagues across the country and welcome to Testing Interrupted, uh, assess, testament, Testing Disrupted, Assessment of English Learners Complicated by the Pandemic. And it was interrupted. I think everything we've done for the last two years has been interrupted. Um, so thank you all for, for tuning in. We have, we are streaming on live on Facebook and we have a live audience of several colleagues from across the country who are looking with us at this uh, very important topic. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the logistics. Um, if you have any questions, please go to uh, events at migrationpolicy.org. There are also some other ways you see on the screen that you can get in touch with us, but that uh, going to events at migrationpolicy.org is probably the best way and quickest way to get your question answered uh, or any logistics issues you're having. Um, so if we could go to the next slide, um, I want to talk a little bit about who we are. Uh, I am Delia Pompa. I'm a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute and work within the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, where we do um, our education work. We focus at MPI on education and training, starting with the very youngest dual language learners going all the way through higher education and adult education. Uh, in addition to that, we focus on issues of language access, which cut across the board with education and also with um, integration policy at the federal and state level along with our partners. So we have a very broad swath of, of, of integration policies that we look at, but our focus is on education. And what brings us here today is one of the uh, most challenging periods I think we've all been through in the education of English learners. And that's the situation that the pandemic brought to us. So if you could go to the next slide, there we go. Thank you, Lisa. Um, we are releasing today um, a report on English learner testing during the pandemic an early readout and a look ahead. And I think that title captures so much of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, first of all, um, this is a first step. I, in the report, we look at um, what was happening, what is happening today, and hopefully what should be happening in the future. So really it straddles where we've been in two years, where we are today, and really where as an education field, uh, working with English learners, where we need to go and what lessons we've learned from the pandemic, our, our learning still from the pandemic. Uh, this report was triggered by what was happening in uh, testing of English learners during the pandemic. Early on, we thought, wow, we're going to have some issues and we better get ready to look at this. And as we began looking at it, we saw it was even more complicated than we thought. But the other complication that we saw is one we've always known as educators and that, that's that you cannot disconnect uh, assessment from instruction, from reporting, even from teacher training. So when we look at this, although we, we started out looking at assessment and look at, look at that very carefully, there are connections all the way around that I think are going to continue spurring conversations among all of us in the field and, and here on this, um, on this webinar today. Um, it's difficult to separate those. Um, this is the other part of the title that's important is that this is an early readout. We don't even know what we don't know at this point, all of it anyway. We know a lot of what we don't know and what we wish we knew, but this is a very early readout. We're just beginning to get results. And I think a lot of us are anxious that we're not getting the results and the answers and the, and the answers to the questions that we have yet. And hopefully as we look ahead, we'll find ways to do that. We are very fortunate today to have a great panel of people who have been on the ground dealing with the issues we talked about all during the pandemic and who have, we believe, um, learned some lessons that they have to share with all of us and who also um, are folks who are big thinkers. And that's why we have them there here today. Uh, let, um, we'll start with the author of the report, Melissa Lazarin. Uh, who is um, a senior advisor here at, um, at the Migration Policy Institute. She put together the report uh, after wading through lots and lots and lots of state information, interviews with people, uh, other people's research reports. So she has quite a lot to contribute today. We also uh, have on with us Gary uh, Cook, who is a senior researcher at um, and I'll get your title right in a while. It'll be up on the screen at, at WIDA. 
we have Ajit uh, Gobalakrishnan, who is at Connecticut. He's a director of uh, assessment, um, per, uh, performance management, uh, and we'll have um, we'll have uh, his specific title up later. And then we have Jorge Macias, who is the head of English Learner Services in the Chicago Public Schools. So um, I will then turn it over in a minute to Melissa to get us started. But before that, the session outline is before you. And we're going to start with Melissa uh, and then move on to a state view um, from Connecticut, from Ajit. And then we will uh, then talk specifically about an assessment approach, WIDA, uh, an, um, a test in itself, many of you know, and Gary, who, um, who has done the research there and leads the assessment, will talk about their experience. And then we'll come back to um, the local level and have Jorge talk about his experience in Chicago. We will have time for questions and answers at the end. Um, please use the chat box to uh, list your questions and we can get to all of you hopefully. Um, if, you, if you'll get the, on the early and we can start lining up um, folks to answer your questions. So right now we have so much to talk about in this hour. Let me turn it over to Melissa. Thank you, Delia. Um, I'm gonna start by uh, first giving a quick overview of what the schooling conditions look like uh, across the country and, um, and then talk a little bit about how that affected uh, the delivery of state assessments. Uh, Lisa, do you mind going to this slide? Um, so urban school districts in which ELs are concentrated were far more likely to operate remotely than rural and suburban districts. Um, the other thing is that many families of ELs and, and of, of course of other students opted for remote learning, even as districts sought to prioritize the English learner population for in-person instruction. Uh, for example, in Texas, nearly 550,000 ELs participated in remote learning instead of going in person. Uh, in New York State, 3% of ELs enrolled in person um, instruction compared to 7% of all students and 13% of, of white students. Um, so, you know, we, we do see some disparities in just the participation in, in remote learning. Um, next slide, please. And among the 10 districts with the highest enrollment of ELs, uh, there was actually a good variation of uh, instruction that was offered. English learners participated um, in half of these districts. Half of these districts are in Florida and Texas where schools were generally uh, operating full-time in person with an option to attend remotely. Um, but this just gives you an overview of sort of the options that were available for students in some of these uh, in these uh, districts with the highest concentration of, of ELs. Um, next slide. Yeah, thank you. So um, remote learning, of course, came with some significant shortcomings, uh, inequitable access to digital services and reliable internet. We've all heard some of these things. Uh, a challenging, challenging home environment due to food and economic security, as well as unstable childcare arrangements. Uh, in addition, few teachers really felt adequately prepared to teach ELs vir virtually. And there was just a really uh, a big shortage of digital resources that were appropriate for ELs as well. So it wasn't surprising um, that some early indicators of educational setbacks began to emerge even before we got to, uh, to the state summative assessment uh, data in the spring. Um, we saw higher uh, rates of chronic absenteeism uh, rates uh, among ELs. Uh, some districts also experienced a decline in EL enrollment specifically. Um, and then a number of school districts were reporting uh, that the percentage of ELs who uh, earned failing grades, that, that was going up um, for among districts that really were looking at what was happening. Um, next slide, please. And then 
There were, of course, some interim assessment results showing a learning lag in ELA and math. Uh, the policy analysis for California education looked at uh, an, a handful of school districts and what the data was showing there for interim assessment data. Um, there wasn't a lot of data of, on how students' English language development was faring, but there are indications that students were not receiving adequate supports and services. Um, there were also surveys of parents of ELs demonstrating that their children's mental health was, was deteriorating under the pandemic. So these are just other uh, nuggets of data that we, you know, that of course other districts, that many districts were, were tracking states as well. So um, just to add to the picture of what we might, what we eventually are seeing in the state assessment data. Next slide, please. So as a reminder, all states canceled their 2019-2020 academic assessments due to the pandemic, and a few states were not able to complete their ELP testing before the March 2020 shutdown of schools. Um, in February 2021, the Biden administration announced that states should take, place, should take steps to administer assessments and publicly report disaggregated data. Uh, for the 2020-21 school year, which last academic year. Uh, the administration also encouraged states to adjust their assessment plans. It also offered states flexibility around assessment-based accountability requirements. And so states ended up taking a variety of approaches to this flexibility. Many states uh, extended their testing windows and those that did, did so by only a few, few weeks, but there were certainly some outliers. Pennsylvania, for example, had one of the longest testing windows from April, 2021 to September, 2021. Uh, Maryland, Washington, and New Jersey moved their testing windows to the fall. There are also uh, a few states that shortened their assessments. Um, California, Georgia, Kentucky, Massachusetts, for example. Colorado administered ELA assessments to students in grades three, five, and seven, but administered math uh, assessments to the other grades. So we saw definitely a variety of approaches to shortening and test administration time. Um, and there were some states that uh, did offer remote test administration, uh, including California. Um, and California, and, I, and I'm glad Ajit's here, can talk a little bit more about what, how Connecticut approached remote testing, um, particularly for ELP assessments. Um, and then some states gave their districts a little bit more flexibility around the type of assessment um, that they could use. So for example, California districts had an option to use other alternative assessments or, or local assessments, as well as New Mexico. Um, and then I'll just quickly go over the next few slides because I do want to save time for our other panelists, but just, um, and I hope you will dig into this, into the report. There's a lot of other examples uh, of data in the, re in the report, but um, in terms of participation, uh, really a, quite a variation of overall, of participation in overall and among ELs, depending on the state. It was not uniformly lower uh, among ELs across all states. We did see some states with higher participation among ELs compared to other student groups. Um, but there were also some notable differences uh, depending on urban density, the demographics, racial and ethnic demographics, English language proficiency. Um, in general, and this might be the case, you know, Gary might be able to uh, answer this, but rates were generally highest among uh, elementary age students and lower among middle and high school age students for ELs and non-ELs alike. Um, and then with respect to performance, uh, certainly we, we uh, when we looked at the data in a number of states, there was uh, much of the Performance for ELs mirrored that for non-ELs. So e math, for example, uh, seems to have been especially uh, hardest hit. Um, ELs experienced some of the steepest performance drops in some states. So there were some, a few states that in analyzing their data did not find um, 
a you know wider achievement achievement gaps um, between ELs or, or between different uh, demographic groups. But there were certainly some states that noticed um, that called out uh, some steeper performance drops among ELs. And of course, a number of states reported that um, the remote learners uh, fared worse. And next slide. I think the main thing I just want to leave you with is that some of the things and, and looking over the data for states, um, public reporting, which was required, was really uneven. Um, I'm again very glad that Connecticut was here because they, uh, the analysis that they put out was very comprehensive, very detailed. They contextualized a lot of the data with uh, the mode of learning that the students uh, participated in, um, but I would say that was very much uh, not the norm. A number of states did not even disaggregate participation or performance data for ELs, um, either at the state or district level, or sometimes both. Um, so that is, you know, something that we we were very concerned about or remain concerned about. Uh, questions also remain about how best to use or apply this data, given all the caveats with respect to participation, mode of learning, and states' modifications to tests. Um, I think another question that remains is it's difficult to determine what the learning and trajectory for EL should be. What should we consider normal or ambitious growth for ELs, um, given uh, the data that we're seeing? And finally, it, if nothing else, the pandemic reinforced the significance of what's happening outside the classroom um, and also you know, what's happening outside of tests. So the significance of non-testing data for understanding students' educational experiences, I think is something that we um, and, and many others are, are keenly interested in as we move forward in, in looking at how to improve how we're measuring academic success. I'll stop there. Thank you, Melissa. She has so much more to tell you. So I hope you will go to uh, our website to look for the report. It is available today. It was just released today. And let me also remind you that the uh, slides from today's um, today's uh, webinar and a recording of the webinar will be available tomorrow on our website. So uh, if you're quickly taking notes, you can slow down a little. So now I want to take us to a state perspective here from Connecticut. I introduced Ajit Gopalakrishnan earlier, uh, and I may have mangled his title. His real title is Chief Performance Officer for uh, the Connecticut Department of Education. So Ajit, let me turn it over to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Delia, and thank you, Melissa, for the excellent introduction. I trust you can see my slide deck. Okay, great. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Delia said, I'm the Chief Performance Officer at the Department of Education, where I oversee uh, data assessment, accountability, uh, and our data warehouse and reporting functions. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for asking and allowing us to share uh, this work. I know I have 10 minutes, so I'll go through really briefly here just to give you a high-level picture, and I can take questions through the Q&A channel. I'm happy to answer some of those questions offline. Big picture in Connecticut, we have about 500,000 students, little over 500,000 students. The percentage of students who are ELDS has been increasing over the last several years. It's almost 9% now in Connecticut, and those eligible for free or reduced price meals is over 40%. Roughly more than half of our students are either English learners, students with disabilities, or from low-income families. And for certain analyses, we combine that group to use it as a high-needs group. Um, in Connecticut, more than 50% of our students are either EL, uh, special education, or from a low-income family. Um, in 2021, so when we went remote in March of 20 and came back for the 2021 school year, we established an attendance data collection where we started to collect at the student level uh, on a monthly basis, um, the number of days the student should have attended in person and the number of days the student should have attended remotely. So it allowed us to kind of know which of our students were attending in person, which of our students were attending remotely and how their attendance was on remote days versus in-person days. So what this chart shows you is the attendance rate in 2021 or some of these student groups that you see at the bottom, 
and their attendance on in-person days versus their attendance on remote days. And generally what you see is that, except for the group here, that's those not eligible for free meals, uh, you see that uh, almost you know, every other group, the attendance on remote days is worse off than the attendance on in-person days. And 90% attendance is at a student level, the chronic absenteeism cut off. Here we're looking at averages uh, in terms of attendance rates. But again, you could see that the difference between in-person uh, days and remote days, the attendance for English learners, students with disabilities, and those free meal eligible. And of course, students who are homeless represents like the biggest differences in terms of attendance. We have been collecting, not only collecting those attendance data, but we've been reporting them on a monthly basis. Once I'm off presenting, I'll put a link to this page where this chart and many other data sets are contained um, on our website. I'll put that link in the chat uh, when I'm done. Uh, what we have been tracking is chronic, I mean, in addition to attendance rates, we've been publishing chronic absenteeism rates on a regular basis. So this is three years of attendance. So 1920, uh, 2021, and 2122, the current year. So we have been tracking attendance. And as you can see, actually, our 2122 attendance, uh, even though we're back in person, is actually higher. Uh, uh, chronic absenteeism is higher than in the prior year for most student groups. Else, it's kind of evened out. I think what we saw is an increase in absenteeism with the Omicron um, variant, and then things kind of stabilizing now a little bit. This contrasts the fact that in 2021, the year that we're primarily discussing about, um, you know, for almost all groups, but especially for ELs, and you, that's the group right here in the middle, you'll notice that only about 39% of their school days, and this is across all students and all school days, 39% were in person in 2021. By contrast, you know, almost every day is in person uh, in 21-22. So th th these types of data and, and our attendance, uh, you know, some of the prior slides I showed were really instrumental in us advocating for coming back fully in person in the 21-22 year. In 2021, obviously, with the pandemic, parents had the choice to opt into remote instruction. This year, there is no such choice for parents to just select to be in person, uh, I'm sorry, to be remote. Parents can't opt to be remote. Uh, so this year, parents do not have the choice to just say, I wanna be remote, but you can only be remote for COVID related reasons. So if you're quarantining, if you were, you tested positive or whatever the case may be, you know. Uh, in the fall semester, if you were a close contact and there were quarantining rules, those have changed in, in the spring. Uh, so clearly as a result, vast majority of the days in 21-22 are in-person days. So now to focus in a little bit more on how we reported our assessment results in 2021 and how we contextualized it, if you will, as Melissa was kind of framing it in her introduction. Uh, we use that student level attendance data, and then we look to see uh, we put students into three buckets, really, you know, those we called in person, where more than 75% of their days were in person. And you see the percentage differences on the left hand side for ELs in blue and non ELs in orange. So clearly, uh, a slightly lower percentage of ELs were in person. We put hybrid bucket to mean anything between 25 and 75% of the days were in person. We call that hybrid because school learning models change, right? I mean, so they, they, they started off in person, maybe they went to a hybrid, then they were closed for two weeks, et cetera. Uh, and the hybrid numbers are pretty even, but then when you get to the remote, you see that nearly one in three of uh, English learners or more than one in three were actually remote, which means that less than 25% of their school days, 180 days is, is roughly our calendar, less than a quarter of those days, the students were scheduled to attend in person. This is not, not necessarily that they actually attended, it just means that their days were scheduled, their membership days were scheduled to be in person. But when we looked at our assessment data, we said, you know what, this is a big opportunity to learn measure for us. We said, if students can't be in person, how can we, um, how, how can, you know, we have to use that information to contextualize the assessment information that we release because not everybody was in person, because in some cases, some districts were fully remote for the first half of the year. High need uh, districts, you know, uh, some of our were, you know, uh, greater incidences of English learners in those districts, they were remote for the whole first semester and they didn't come back till after MLK day. 
or even a hybrid schedule. So it would be really improper, unfair to sort of just present the results as is, as if it were just another year of testing and put it right next to everything else. So we actually created, conducted separate analysis that use the learning model information that I'm showing here at the student level. We also did not release our assessment results through our standard assessment portal because we didn't think 2021 achievement should just be sort of put in line with all prior years. We had to contextualize it using this learning model information. Uh, we created a separate web page for it, and I'll put the link to this page when I'm done as well in the chat so you can you can go look. So, but basically we 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 explained why special analyses were necessary in 2021. Um, you know, while we had the same test blueprint for our academic assessments, we didn't, you know, same test forms, same in-person testing protocols, et cetera. We said, you know, there are differences in terms of how students learned. And also those were factors beyond the educator's control. It's not like, you know, if a parent wanted to opt to be remote last year, that was that was okay. And the school had to figure out a way to accommodate that, uh, that request. Um, so we, we, we kind of put those factors into the mix in terms of consideration. Uh, briefly review this, sort of discuss the participation rate here and in terms of our academic assessments three through eight, particularly looking at Smarter Balance here, Connecticut is a Smarter Balance state. Um, and here I'm looking at the high needs student group and the non-high needs student group. High needs, remember, is the English learner, students with disabilities, and students from low-income families, sort of a combined group. And what you see here is for both of these groups, you see that the blue here is uh, the fact that they tested in person. And what you see is that those who are in person or hybrid, they pretty much tested in person. It's only when the students were remote that you had a split of remote versus in-person testing. And we were one of the states that offered remote testing for our summit of last year. We're not doing that this year and don't plan to do it. Um, do it again. It has a, uh, it, it actually went, went reasonably well considering everything um, and we felt comfortable with the scores in the way they turned out it's just it's just too much of a uh, too many sort of variables in the mix so we're not going to continue it but you do get a sense the green represents those who tested remotely and you'll notice that uh, among high needs students and non-high needs students a chunk of students among those who are remote actually tested remotely so just wanted to put that in context uh, we did some com comparisons between the groups of those who tested in person and those who tested remotely. We said the groups were reasonably similar, but when we made all our inferences about how we did in the pandemic, we used those scores from those who tested in person. Uh, and I'll discuss that briefly. So here, um, just, I'll just present a few ways in which we presented the results. These are smarter balanced uh, scale scores. Uh, grades three, four, five is the pandemic year in 1920 when we didn't test, and six is the 2021 year. Here we're looking at one grade, grade six math in 2021, one subject math. This chart particularly breaks out English learners and non-English learners. And you could see that from third to fourth grade, that, that's a pre-pandemic period for this class of 27. That's a pre-pandemic period. Uh, that's from 18 to 19. 2018 to 2019. And you see the slope of the, the growth from, and these are matched students from third to fourth grade. You see the steeper slope, but then when you see the pandemic uh, effect there from four to six is from 19 to 21, you see kind of the, the, the flattening out and you see that the slopes are, are, are flatter for hybrid and remote students as compared to in-person learners. I mean, for English learners, uh, they are obviously uh, functioning at a, at a much lower level than the non-English learners, but a similar kind of pattern holds that the trajectories tend to get uh, flatter. The other sort of analysis that we've done, and we've got a lot more to do, but I'm just giving you some sneak peeks here, is similar thing. Here we're looking at high needs versus non-high needs, but in this case, in addition to, uh, and it's also sixth grade math, so just so that you have a, you have a frame of reference, here we have actually included a pre-pandemic um, slope. So this would be for the four years before the pandemic hit to show you what a non-pandemic influence trajectory might have looked for high needs and non-high needs students. And you see that the slope from fourth to sixth grade actually stays for that dotted line, stays kind of steep. Whereas uh, 
solid lines, which are pandemic lines, tend to get a lot flatter. Um, I mean, and that is your your pandemic sort of learning loss effect. And what you see is that the, the hybrid and remote, their slopes are less steep through the pandemic, and consequently, um, the you know learning is is uh, affected. At a high level, what do we learn? is that in all grades and most student groups, those who learned in person lost the least ground. And that is the point we made consistently is that everyone lost ground, but those who learned in person lost the least ground. Those who learned in hybrid or remote showed substantially weaker achievement and growth. And the differences are largest in mathematics. Um, and I put a point here about our Lost Links assessment, which is our ELP assessment. And what we saw with the Lost Links, and, and Melissa, you were talking about testing. So the way Lost Links ended up for us, we finished Lost Links testing in first week of March. So in 2020, we actually finished our Lost Links testing just before we went remote. And, uh, and of course, the academic assessments were subsequently canceled. In 2021, we were able to do the Lost Links. We had some remote uh, summatives, but not, not a whole lot. But we had that um, happen. And in 21-22, we're back to fully in-person administration. But one point about 2021 is that we noticed that the growth, um, because we, we didn't want to just look at proficiency, you know, single year proficiency rates, because they're unmatched students and it's really not a fair way to look. So we looked at matched students, and I don't have a chart here to show you th that analysis is really, really preliminary at this point. But we noticed that in literacy, the growth was stronger for those who learned in person compared to those who learned in hybrid. And literacy is reading and writing combined. Um, in the last links uh, frame. Uh, a similar pattern, we didn't see that in the oral component, so speaking and, and listening components. And we'll have to see what happens after we finish. We just finished testing this year, so we'll have to figure out like how those scores, how growth continues um, through the pandemic. The last slide I have, and I'll stop after this, is um, we're continuing to dig more into these data. We have set up a research collaborative. I'll put on, there's an icon up here um, that says Connecticut COVID-19 Research Collaborative. Uh, we've actually partnered with public and private universities in our state, but there's actually a group of researchers who are looking at remote learning that happened through the pandemic. And this is one of the charts we just presented yesterday. And, I'll, and it's basically affirming what I've shared with you in some of the other slides. But here, the researchers actually controlled for prior achievement, controlled for demographics, controlled for things like EL, special ed, and are able to show that um, whether it be high need uh, districts, and those are the solid lines, or whether they be districts with you know, lesser proportions of high need students, so those are the dotted line, those who learned remotely or you know, lesser degrees in person actually lost more ground. Less so in ELA, but much more so in mathematics. And that those gaps actually reduce at the upper grades. Um, and almost, um, almost not there at the at the 11th grade, we administer the SAT as our state assessment, and we didn't see really much of an impact there. So I know I'm a little over time. Sorry about that. Um, but hopefully that was helpful. And uh, I will stop sharing. Thank you very much, Ajit. Uh, over time, but such great data. Uh, so let's move on to the perspective of a test developer and test implementer, Gary Cook, who is the Senior Director of Assessment and for the WIDA Consortium and Associate Scientist for the Wisconsin Center for Education Research. So Gary, on Thank to you, you, Delia. Let me share my screen and get to the presentation. I'll try to catch, make up on some time if I can. Um, I just wanted to share with you sort of WIDA's experiences during the pandemic. Um, and during that, I, we also have a report that um, we're gonna be sharing about as well. Just talk a little bit about the challenges and solutions. I'll be really quick about this because Ajit and, and Melissa kind of outlined the, the whole uh, background of the challenges and solutions that were offered. What we observed in 2021 and uh, using the data and the recommendations we've provided than what we've learned at WIDA. Uh, the WIDA is a consortium of uh, 41 states, uh, districts, territories, and federal agencies, and we test about 2 million students every year. Um, let's talk a little bit about the challenges. Everyone knows, I'll go, I'll go quickly through this. School closures started happening in 2021, started in 2020, and it continued. Uh, in May 18th, in 2020, the Department of Education 
published a fact sheet and it required states that, uh, uh, well, it required states to administer English language proficiency assessments that year. And so one of the challenges that we had at the Rudy Consortium was to sort out, well, how are we going to administer the access? What kinds of resources we were going to provide? The way we it works is we are a consortium of states. And so we use our state partners as uh, insight and given, uh, giving us guidance on what we need to do. Were we to test remotely? Were we to test face-to-face? -face? Well, after a lot of deliberation in the summer of 2020, we decided not to go remote test administration and to administer the test face-to-face uh, -face as best we could. We created a whole sort of resources very similar to what Connecticut has done, um, a website to support test administrations. This is just a graphic from that website. We also provided resources for educators, um, not only in assessing, but also providing for students' mental health, students uh, engaging in content, helping students learn remotely, et cetera. Um, we created a remote screener um, English language proficiency assessments do several things. One of the things they do is identify whether a student is an English learner and whether a student needs to be an English learner. And so we created a remote screener that could be administered via telephone to try and allow schools and districts to administer incoming ELs to the in incoming students to see if they're ELs. We extended our testing window in the fall and we published a report on what we discovered uh, in the 2021 school district. And that's what I'm gonna talk about right now. There's this report on our website. Uh, and it's on our public website. If you get to it, here's the URL. It'll be available for you in the PowerPoint. Um, I'm not gonna share a lot of the detail of those uh, the graphs and figures in that report. You can take a look at it yourself. I'll just share some high level observations. Um, one of the observations was that in the 2021 school district, we tested about 30% fewer students. Now, the displays that you're seeing right now are for our online test. We administer access both online and in paper. Um, on our online assessment, about 30% of the students were not, from, were not participating compared to the previous year. So quite a few students were we're not participating on the assessment across the states. And we had lots of variability from states who were administering up to 95% to states who actually administered 3%. Um, really high level findings of the study. We had many missing students and especially in early grades. Um, as, as Melissa had said, those are the, proportionally, those are the majority of students who were missing. Overall English language proficiency on access was lower. Again primarily uh, largely observed in elementary grades. Also, we looked at growth, um, prior growth from 2018, 2019 to 2019, 20 and 2020, 2021. Um, as, as you know, the English language proficiency assessment did not have a skip year. And so we participated, what we just discovered um, from states who participated that the student growth was about 25% of that compared to previous years. Um, with relatively large declines in grades three through eight. Um, when we talk to states about how to think about the data, one of the things that we mention is if participation rates are really low, it's very, it, we really are caution states and districts from making strong interpretations um, of the data. Um, the inference is uncertain because we don't know why students are performing. Are our students not performing as Ajit mentioned earlier that they're, they're being remote and not getting the services? Are they not providing, are, are they not growing? Are they not performing well because the, the homes don't have the resources? We don't know. But if you do have, and who's missing in the data? That's another question that we've been asking um, states and districts when they think about interpreting the data. One of the questions to ask in the 2021 school, school year is who's not there and, and why. When we talk to, sorry, when we talk to schools and, and teachers, what we wanna highlight is that performance on access in 2021 reflects the same level of language proficiency as it did in previous years. We work really hard to make sure that the score represents a student's language proficiency when they took the test. Um, so the test essentially gives us valid information. The, what, what occurred and the interventions that students received could be extremely different, which is why we see 
differences um, across years and aggregating individual student performances across classrooms or schools, um, it might be really difficult to understand. And so the critical question we've been highlighting to educators and to principals is, is really not, not aggregating your information and, and decrying what you're seeing, but the question is, how can you best support the English learners language development now? How, how can you really support where they're at right now with what you understand? Um, really quickly on what we've learned, um, through the results of, in our experience with COVID-19, we really have, we need to identify resources schools and districts can use to support local assessments of English learners language proficiency. Um, we wanna explore the possibility of providing remote testing solutions. M many states didn't provide remote testing solutions for a variety of, of reasons. Um, but one of the things that we wanna really begin thinking about is how, how we might offer this in the future, um, possibly our interim assessments, possibly resources like Smarter Balance has for classroom teachers to use uh, 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 instruments that they could create for formative assessment. And also if we were moving in that direction, what kinds of resources could we create support for parents and caregivers so that they can participate in remote testing. One of the challenges of English learners is many times their parents are, are not English speaking. Um, so providing resources for them has to understand and accommodate the fact that, that a lot of their parents don't, uh, are, are not highly literate in English, but might be in Spanish or another language. How do we provide resources to support those? So those are the things that we've learned and the things that we're beginning to explore as a result of this. And we, um, like Connecticut, have only just begun looking at the data and trying to understand what it is that, that happened in 2021 and how we can really help children get back on track and how we can help them accelerate their language proficiency development. And that is all I have, so I'll stop sharing. Deli, I think you're on mute. Ooh. Am I? Not now. <laughs> okay. I said thank you to you, Gary. And I, I want the, our colleagues uh, who are listening to know that you've got lots more information in that report and that they should go to it. Um, then, now let's go for a district perspective. And I want to introduce Jorge Macias, who is Chief of Language and Cultural Education in Chicago Public Schools and can tell you what happened on the ground. So, Jorge? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I think. Gary, uh, we're a WIDA, we're part of the WIDA consortium in Illinois and Chicago Public Schools is, uh, administers the access administration. Um, in March, 2020, uh, when we went to lockdown uh, across the country, um, what we saw in Chicago, we had already finished the administration of access for that year. Uh, in Illinois, our testing windows are generally January and February. And so we were able to complete that administration. So going into the fall of 21, we did have data to properly place our ELs um, in program uh, to identify supports, to look at their goals based on their latest assessment. Um, so going into the 21 school year, uh, in terms of where the students were, we felt prepared. The challenge was that in Chicago Public Schools, uh, the majority of the year was spent in remote learning. Uh, our students were, our parents were given the option to return in March of 21 or yeah, March of 21. And so we still had about half the students uh, who stayed remote the remainder of the year uh, and with about the same proportion of ELs as well. And what we've experienced during that time and, and going into the summer was we started to see um, grades data. And we do a lot of work with the consortium uh, part of the University of Chicago to do research. And grades are really tied into like the overall performance of students being on track to graduate students being on track uh, in terms of their uh, promotion across grades, but we saw a lot of increase in uh, Ds and Fs uh, in core courses like math, science, uh, English, and social studies. And so when we began to see that during the year, uh, we already had interventions in place. Unfortunately, they were also online. So whether it was tutoring, um, whether it was instructional resources uh, and things that were available to schools that we provided through uh, school guidance, uh, the participation was still um, not as well. And, and I think that was highlighted well by our colleague in Connecticut. We did not see the same amount of participation that we would see typically in in-person uh, like you would in attendance. 
so students who ended up going to, you know, getting too many Ds or Fs, and I think it was something like 15% of the Ls had uh, a D or an F in a core course by the end of the year. When we went to the summer, our district put together a moving forward together plan, which took those ESSER funds and started to come up with the interventions we would need. So typically uh, during an academic year and during the summer, we would offer special programming for our ELs to enhance the, uh, this is not like a credit recovery type program. This is a program for specifically enhancing their academic development in English. Uh, we have a five, four to five week summer program that we offer. Uh, we expanded that across the district to have more seats for ELs, uh, specifically prioritizing those students who had uh, received a D or an F. And going into the academic year of 21-22, the one we're in now, all students who are required to come back in person, and so uh, EL student attendance and everything went back to what would be closer to normal. Um, and we were expanded our ESL after-school tutoring programs uh, for ELs. Typically, we have about you know 100 to 120 schools participate. We tried to expand that to upwards of 170 schools participate. And so we saw greater, obviously, uh, participation in our ESL after-school tutoring program. On top of that, uh, we also had college tutors uh, through a program that we've done uh, with uh, various partners to support in-school tutoring during the day uh, for students who are still falling behind. And that data was really helpful. I would say that the challenge was that last year when we were still in remote, uh, we were required to give the assessment. Um, and I think it, it really boils down to how I want to explain how it goes from federal to state to a local district. And so we were going through an administrative change because of a presidential election, if we all recall in January. Typically, our state would administer the access in January and February. But given that we were still remote, there was lack of guidance about what we would do in that scenario. And so our state delayed the administration till mid-March, waiting for uh, a new administration and a new Department of Education to obviously transition. And so what happened is finally when we got guidance from the federal level, the state was able to uh, give us more guidance. And what occurred is we ended up opening the testing window uh, in mid-March and we left it open for the Rangers school year, which in Chicago Public Schools was to mid-June. Uh, so we had a, about a three month window, which would be a longer window than we would typically have, but it was still an assessment that had to be done in person. So ultimately what you saw happen was about half the students, a little more than half of our students tested because those who stayed remote uh, did not, parents did not opt to bring them to school to take an assessment. And, you know, it's hard to fault a parent if they had those types of concerns. Uh, they did not want to bring the child in strictly for an assessment. So only a little more than half of our students did take the access last year. The data was still informing uh, in terms of where students uh, growth was across the four domains. And it did help uh, inform and prioritize more students for summer school. It helped inform uh, where after-school tutoring might be needed and which students might benefit. But to some of what we talked about, the students who didn't test, what do we know? So that's where that grade data was very helpful and valuable in informing which students should be prioritized. We came out this year with the goal of trying to reduce that number by half of the students who earned a D or an F. Um, through the first semester, we've been able to achieve that. Uh, this school year, uh, we feel these interventions. And honestly, just the students being back in person uh, has really benefited to help them catch up in terms of um, their in-person learning and their academic development. But we know this is going to be something that's going to take time. Uh, the, the learning loss, those experiences is not going to happen, uh, is not going to be recovered in one academic year. Uh, so we are grateful for ESSER funding that we have, that it's going to be multi-years so that we can continue to offer these expanded services for a couple of academic years to try to help the students uh, recover uh, what they lost during that remote learning experience. Um, I think we're in, in our district, uh, in terms of the leadership, uh, we feel strongly that in-person is uh, very beneficial to English learners. And I, I would highlight that as a, a practitioner to say, particularly when you look at the early uh, grades, and I think anybody, whether they're EL, uh, they have EL students or any other type of student, if you can imagine a kindergarten classroom functioning in a remote setting, it's very difficult uh, to teach a child to read. It's really difficult to teach fluency and phonics and things that are uh, foundational to literacy in an environment where, you know, you have five-year-olds on a computer for multiple, you know, now I'm not even going to say multiple hours, let alone one hour to have, you know, 28, 25 little ones, five-year-olds on a computer, and you're trying to practice fluency and phonetics. 
uh, it's very difficult. And so it's not surprising the data we saw from Connecticut. It's not surprising the data we have internally that shows um, that the students who suffered the most were in the primary grades. And those are the ones who are benefiting from coming back to in-person and those expanded services. So I will leave it at that. And uh, I'll definitely have questions, I'm sure, from the uh, participants. Thank you very much, Jorge. Uh, uh, good summary of a lot of work, I think. Um, I have several questions for you, but let me start with one that uh, we get from advocates a lot and parents. Um, you all mentioned remote testing and that it didn't happen. Uh, can you explain to people why remote testing was a bad idea? And uh, I, I think some of you said you were gonna look at how you could change it. What would have to change to be able to do remote testing? Anybody? I, well, I'll jump in to kick it off and Gary, you probably have a, have a bunch of insights too, but I think the main concern for states and psychometricians is the unknown. Uh, you know, you can control a lot of things in a in-person test setting and you can ensure standardization because when we say a standardized assessment, it's not just about the instrument, it's also about how it's given. So there were lots of controls with the remote testing. There was video, there was uh, observation of the kid, you know, kids not being allowed to get into the session until their <clears throat> things were checked and so on. But there's just a lot of unknowns that there is just no way of knowing if any of them might be impacting the differences, if you see any differences in the score. So it's just a, it's just an unknown that's really hard to solve. Yeah. Thanks, Ajit. I'm just gonna add to what you said. I think the, there are several concerns that we, we had shared. We were planning and we were moving down the path of doing a remote uh, administration of access, the questions that states and, and we were asking ourselves is what's the, what's the, because we want to provide a standardized test. We want to make a test score that means the same thing as it did in previous years. We want to make an inference to the student's language proficiency. That, does the student's home have the same degree of resources, technology uh, that you might have at a school, is the parent able to help the child with the administration materials and all of the things that you do when you do a remote test to be able to allow the student to adequately administer the test, the, the test itself? Those are the big challenges that, that we really face. How do you determine an equal treatment in administering a test? And how do you determine whether the score represents the student's language proficiency? or the student's language proficiency as a result of trying to get through all the technology in their home, or the student trying to get through the lack of technology in their home, or a student, I mean, I can go on in a long list of things. Um, obviously there's security issues, but quite frankly, we weren't really as concerned about that. What we were concerned about is, can, can we really provide a score to students that really is meaningful that, that a, a school and a parent can say, yes, that student is ready or not ready to be uh, receiving English services. And, and we just came to the conclusion that we couldn't um, in a remote solution. Thanks, that's from, really from helpful. Were you gonna say something? Yeah, from a local perspective, I think it's important to remember that computer literacy is a big part of this. Um, the, the result could be impacted by both the lack of literacy, computer literacy of the parent and of the, the student. And so that would skew any potential score. Um, and that takes, that's, that's not a light thing. Uh, teachers have to be certified to administer the access test. So obviously, you know, parents training would, you know, that would require hours of them to become watch videos and learn how to administer these types of assessments. And then their ability to actually do it and understand uh, the nuance of maybe questions or things they would have to ask, especially like in domains of speaking, um, it's more complex to offer it online. Uh, than it would be to um, offer it in person. And I'm, you know, I think in that it's hard to also assess if, you know, first, second, and third grader, are they computer literate enough to take the information from the screen, understand it, and then actually show and demonstrate on the assessment what they know uh, if there's a gap in computer literacy. Thank you, thank you very much. One of our uh, colleagues wisely uh, reminded us that a lot of the issues that we saw exacerbated during the pandemic have existed since before the pandemic. And, and one of those is what data exists around English learners. And, and I think all of you mentioned um, 
the fact that you didn't know a lot of things when, when you know, who was out, why they were out, who's learning, all those kinds of things. Um, so as we look forward, as we begin to look forward, what changes in, you know, data collection, data retrieval, data use, would do you see um, as important for us to begin considering? Uh, should we ever have this kind of uh, pandemic again? And just because we know some of the issues were always there and the data seems to have helped when, when I look at what Ajit had and was able to, um, to document, I think that might've helped educators in Connecticut make some better decisions than had they not had the data. So what do you all see going forward that we should consider from a policy perspective and from a practice perspective at the, at the state and local level? I'll speak just from my perspective in Connecticut. Um, the legislature put forward a remote learning commission to explore remote learning in Connecticut. And after all this data, the biggest thing we're saying is we've got to start small. That blanket remote solutions are not the answer. Yes, there might be some students for whom remote learning actually worked. And perhaps it works in certain situations, but it's not a blanket universal program that we just implement and willingly start enrolling students without any safeguards, that it has to be a personalized decision and the requisite supports have to be there for the students. And our assessment data also has is clearly cautioning us away from the early grades. And even if we wanna tap into remote learning at all in the future, we wanna, we, we are sort of contending that it should start at in a small scale, but in the upper grades. Um, Gary, I don't know if you were going to say something, but before you do, I was going to, I was going to take us back. Thank you, Ajit, uh, but to data. So what data do you wish you'd had that maybe we should consider going forward? Well, I wish I had Ajit's data. Um, <laughs> the, it, I mean, we have 41 different places and they have, we have 41 different, at WIDA, 41 different ways of looking at it. And there are some states that have very comp integrated systems. And that's how they, how they have had their data systems. In other states, they have really strong local control and they don't have very tight integrated systems. So I think a way of identifying just remote hybrid in, in person um, is, a, is a really powerful tool. Um, if we're gonna move down this remote testing uh, pathway because without it, it's really hard. I mean, one of the things that I was excited about your last slide, Ajit, was that the idea that you can condition, you can control for the type of intervention and really see what's happening because you really can't do that otherwise. So it depends on, you know, if, if we want to continue this remote learning pathway, then we're going to need to know a little bit more at the local level, at the student level, the types of interventions that they received. And I don't even want to think right now about the interaction between program type for English learners and remote hybrid or face-to-face. Uh, -face. How does that interact? And so just getting more information like that would be helpful. Can one of our audience, Hortham, sorry, were you gonna say something? No, I would only caution that uh, one thing that we observed with remote is, you know, I think we need to do more for teachers to prepare them on how to teach in a remote classroom setting. Uh, one of the things that English learners need a lot is peer interaction, specifically peers who um, have a little more proficiency so they could practice that academic vocabulary. Um, when teachers are really not able to use groups, when they're not able to monitor, uh, we're not able to have dialogue going on in this uh, kind of remote setting, the students really lose. And that's something you would only see in in-person when students are grouped and they're doing tasks, they're working together, they're doing, they're learning from their peers. And it's really hard for that peer learning to happen in a remote setting, unless we, you know, unless the teacher has, uh, you know, a lot of training on how to maybe use a, a Google Classroom, for example. Um, and so I think we might need to do more before we think about going to remote, uh, to do more about our teacher development on how to use uh, technology for remote learning. I want to put an exclamation point on what Jorge just said. In second language development, one of the most powerful ways that we learn of new languages by interacting with each other. And if we don't have that interaction, and I don't mean interacting with just ELs, interacting with ELs and with peers that aren't English learners and adults, all of that interaction is really something that powerfully allows children to, to gain uh, a facility in the second language. And 
if you do a remote solution, you need to, you can't lose that because that really is powerfully affecting how students learn. Thank you. Uh, I know for everybody, we're a little over time, but there are a couple of questions I want to get to that I think are important. This, this next one, um, has one of our um, uh, viewers asked about uh, state's ability to use the flexibility the federal government uh, gave uh, in, in this time. And this would have been the perfect time to use some flexibility in assessment. Um, but I, I want to tie this question in with the situation that from a lot of advocates and parents, we have a question about, you know, why are we testing English learners so much? And isn't there a better way? And, you know, uh, the tests really aren't informing, they're not built to inform um, instruction. Uh, so I think in the bigger picture, we uh, have a large challenge in front of us in terms of uh, understanding the difference between summative assessment that gives you a profile of how a whole school is doing and individual assessment that tells you what you need to do. So the, that's a big challenge for states and how they use that flexibility is a big question. So. Um, what do you think were the biggest barriers to states in using that flexibility that the government said they could, the Fed said they could have in, in looking at uh, assessing uh, not just English learners, but all kids during the pandemic and just coming out of the pandemic right now? When you say flexibility, what particularly are you referring to? And was this for the 2021 year flexibility yeah. in yes. spring 2021? Well, yes. I think part of our commitment, I'll speak for my, for Connecticut, is we were actually committed to learning how our students were doing through the pandemic. That was important to us, not just to know where they were at this time frame, but also uh, to be able to use this as growth for next year. Because if we don't have this interim measure, we don't have growth next year, too. So I was actually pleased that we managed to get solid participation this past year, both on our ELP assessment and our academic assessment. The other thing I'll say is standardized assessments that sample the content of a full year or sample a wide range of skill set aren't going to provide precise information for instructional purposes because they're not designed for that. They're designed to give you a general sense of where students are, but in a, a, a valid measure and a reliable measure. That's what you get from it. They're not designed to be like uber diagnostic kind of measures that give you what to teach next week, which skill and which particular area and which sub-skill and so on. You know, we, we caution our field against reading too much into sub-scores that might be based on too few questions. So I think the goal is to sort of have high quality standardized assessments. And, and what we find is that our state assessments actually aren't the ones taken up the bulk of the time. There are lots of other district implemented assessments that end up consuming a lot of time Sorry, Jorge, no, uh, no offense to a district, but we find like there are lots of other standardized assessments that get thrown into the mix and then you, which are pretty much giving the same sort of indication. Uh, so we, we sort of encourage minimizing large scale standardized testing and sort of using more targeted diagnostic measures. Ajit, thank you. And I know you have a hard stop. So if you need to drop off, we understand. I'm just going to, um, because we are out of time and we have so much more to learn, um, we may have to come back to this. But just one more question for the, for the panelists, and that's as you look forward, if you had the magic wand, what would you change about assessment, data collection, instruction, and how they interact for English learners? What lessons did we learn that you thought, oh, going forward, we need to really change this. I'll let Jorge go with that one and I'll follow it up. <laughs> Unless you, I'm really, uh... So what, what we could have done or what we should do now? Can I, can I restate that? I'm sorry. Both, <laughs> both. As you look at the, the interaction between assessment, instruction, teacher training, all of that, um, and what happened during the pandemic to English, let's just focus on English learners. Right. What would you change in the future that, that now you go, okay, we're gonna change that, even though we don't know how now, what would you have to change? What would you want well, to change? Uh, I think I said in my last response, one, we have to work with teacher development for that piece of how to develop, uh, how to use technology, both in the classroom and in a remote setting. Um, I hate to say it, but you never know. In five, 10, 15, 20 years again, we could have a similar situation where we're required to go remote 
even if it's just two weeks or two months, uh, teachers need to be trained on how to use technology both in their classroom and in a remote setting. And specifically with populations like English learners, um, because I think we have to find the right tools so that we can able to uh, use those gaps for when students are at different levels uh, of their proficiency. It's very diff different to teach a student who's a level one uh, and, you know, in using the access, for example, uh, from teaching from a level four, level five. That student has a lot more proficiency in English. So that gap between the teacher's um, you know, ability to teach them and, and make the content accessible to what a level one child needs, which is a lot more work in the native language, uh, we got to do a lot more uh, for that to prepare. I would have liked to have seen a pause uh, in our state of the access test because we were remote. Uh, the administration was just very challenging. Um, and even though we had two and a half months, we did have the 20 data. We really had that rich local data from the grades, from school curriculum assessments to really make the planning we needed to make. Um, I would have liked to have seen a pause uh, of that administration in 21, but that was not the flexibility uh, we were given, I believe, at the federal level. So, um, you know, we proceeded. But I think going forward, we got to do a lot more training on how to use technology both in the classroom and in a remote. I'll just add to Jorge, and, and we, as in the developers, need to provide more formative resources to allow uh, educators to utilize and better uh, evaluate their students' classroom day by day uh, language proficiency. And with the new 2020 standards, that's one of the things that we're going to be in looking at is providing formative assessment resources that teachers can use on the fly to support understanding and development of students' language proficiency. That's, I think, the summative assessments have a role and a purpose uh, for English learners to really determine if they require services. But the day-to-day -day thing, um, it, that's the assessment really isn't going to help you with that. That's where the formative resources need to come in play. And that's one of the things I think we need to start moving forward with uh, at, at a greater speed. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, uh, everybody who was listening in. Uh, Ashit's answer to the question is in the chat box. I hope you look at that. Um, as we leave you today, I just want to remind you that the report is out online, along with tomorrow, the recording of, of this session and the slides. Uh, I just want to say we have a long way to go. The pandemic uh, is history. What happened, happened. I think we learned a lot, and I hope that as a field, we can come together to finish answering the questions and to figure out where we need to go from here. Thank you, everyone. Look forward to talking with you individually, uh, and we will try to get to all of your questions if we didn't get to them today. Thank you very much.